Back in the uh, medieval era, it was commonplace for parents to, to raise their children up to about the age of seven to 14. And then at some point between the age of seven and 14 in medieval Europe, they would actually send their kids off to other people's homes for seven, sometimes 10, up to 14 years to serve as basically house servants or laborers on other people's properties. The weird thing is, is they would then receive kids into their homes and take them. So the idea was, you know, raising kids is expensive. It's easier to starve someone else's kid than my own. So there was this weird dynamic where most children were sent off to be raised by other people. And when they got into their adult years, around 21 or so, they would then, if they were, had done a good job, they would then be apprenticed into a particular trade and finally released. But if you read some of the historical accounts of some of these children that went through that process, it really was a horrendous process for most. Some of them were abused, they were misused, they were worked to the bone. And it was a difficult, almost slave-like lifestyle for most European children during the medieval era. But the good news is there was light at the end of the tunnel because at some point your indentured service would end and you would be released to marry, to work, to raise a family and spend the rest of your life essentially as a free man or free woman. But imagine what it was like for Daniel and his contemporaries in the sixth century BC. The book of Daniel in terms of its context is a narrative account and a prophetic account of Nebuchadnezzar's capture of Jerusalem. So if, you, if you're familiar with biblical history, you'll know, to, you'll know that in Genesis chapter one and two, we have the creation account of how God made the world. In Genesis chapter three, we have the fall of mankind into sin. And then up to Genesis chapter 11, we have all of the events and the long lifespans leading up to the flood. Then we have the flood. And shortly after the flood, we enter into what we call the, the period of the patriarchs. So those great forefathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then of course, we enter into that period of time known as the Exodus where the people of God found themselves in captivity in Egypt. And 400 years goes by, they're eventually released from captivity. And then we enter into the period of the wanderings in the Sinai desert. So they wander around the desert for 40 years because of their rebellion against God. Eventually they make it into the land of promise. They conquer the land of promise and looking for leaders, various ad hoc leaders just sort of rise up. They're called the judges. They rise up and they, they, they protect the nation. They save the nation. After an extended period of time being ruled by the judges, they ask for a king. So God gives them a king in the form of Saul. Saul rules the nation, the United Kingdom of Israel. David rules the United Kingdom of Israel. Solomon rules the United Kingdom of Israel. But eventually a fourth king rises up named Rehoboam, who listens to his teenage buddies instead of his dad's seasoned advisors, and the kingdom is split in half. So then for centuries, the kingdom of Israel is essentially two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom called Israel on the north, composed of 10 tribes. And there's the southern kingdom called the, 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 the kingdom of Judah, composed of Judah and the smaller tribe of Benjamin. In 722 
BC, the Assyrians come and they basically deport, they, they conquer and they deport the 10 northern tribes into Assyria. So what do you have left? You have Judah in the south. And 150 years or so goes by. And in 586, the Babylonian king, who's now the super ruler of the world at that point in time, comes in and he conquers Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, and he deports them into Babylon. And it was in that context that Daniel, as a young man, probably a teenager, maybe even a a boy of 12, 13, 14 years of age, is deported about a thousand kilometers away. You can imagine how long it would take to walk that to the land of Babylon. And he spends the rest of his life in captivity in Babylon. He's living in a hostile environment. He has, his nation has experienced the judgment of God because of their rebellion against him. And he is confronted with all sorts of challenges and temptations to compromise his faith. He suffers and ultimately perseveres because of his belief in God. So that's the background to the book of Daniel. Now the book of Daniel has 12 chapters. The first seven chapters are largely narrative and then the last five chapters are largely prophetic. We're gonna spend the most of our time in the first seven, but this is what's also cool about the book of Daniel. Chapter one and a couple of verses at the beginning of chapter two are written in Hebrew. Who spoke Hebrew? The Jewish people that have been taken into captivity. Chapters two, three, four, five, six, and seven are written in Aramaic. Who spoke Aramaic? The Babylonians understood Aramaic. It was kind of a lingua franca at the time. And then the remaining chapters go back to Hebrew. Now, why is that the case? Well, if you look at those six chapters, two, three, four, five, and six, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, that are all written in Aramaic, what you'll notice is that there's a structure and pattern to those chapters. So chapter two parallels chapter seven, chapter three parallels chapter six, and chapter three parallels chapter four. And at the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four, two of the kings that were governing and ruling the nation of Israel at the time in captivity declare their allegiance to the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the true sovereign God of the universe. Now, the reason this is called a chiastic structure in Hebrew, where you have these parallelisms, we'll talk about that a little bit more as we unpack the book. But the reason why these six chapters are written in Aramaic is because the Babylonians could read them. And they could see that even though they had captured the Israelites and taken them into captivity in their own land, that their own kings, men that would have been considered rulers of the world's superpower at the time, had ultimately been humbled by the true and living God and declared his sovereign lordship overall. So there's, there's not only a message of encouragement here for the people of God, but there's a prophetic warning to the proverbial pagan that if you mess with God, and if you mess with God's people, you too will eventually 
fail. Every nation, every king, every ruler will eventually submit him or herself to the true king of kings and the Lord of lords. So we're not only gonna be encouraged by the message that God has for the people of God in chapters one and chapter eight and following, but we're also going to speak a word of prophetic warning to the godless, to the heathen, to those that would usurp God's authority that your time is limited. Well, as we start out in chapter one, what I'd like us to be thinking about is this question, how would you hold up under captivity? If you were Daniel and you'd been taken from your land, deported a thousand kilometers, spend the rest of your life in captivity in a pagan environment, how would you hold up under captivity? Let's make it super relevant. How are you holding up under captivity? How are you holding up in a nation that has largely rejected God and is hostile to the Christian faith? Would you be able to endure the attempts to assimilate you into pagan culture? Would you endure the attempts to punish you for your non-compliance? Would you be willing to be imprisoned for refusing to worship the state and instead continuing to publicly worship the true and living God, even when you had been commanded by the governing officials not to? Would you maintain your resolve or would you buckle in order to survive? Well, the first several chapters of Daniel force us to ask and answer this question. And the overarching truth that we're gonna see in chapter one, it's essentially a call to the people of God to maintain your resolve to honor the king. Maintain your resolve to honor the king and you'll never regret it. What we're going to do because these chapters are rather long is instead of reading the whole thing for you and then breaking it down, I'm gonna read it. And as I read it, I'm gonna comment on various things throughout the text. So we're gonna kind of break it up a little bit and then we'll sort of digest it for the purposes of application and some more bite-sized pieces. Well, here's the thing you need to understand if you're gonna maintain your resolve that there's gonna be pressure from the state for you to compromise. So here we have the narrative opening as follows. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's the southern nation, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Notice this, this is really important. God permits the pagan king to conquer his anointed king. Why? because our God is not afraid to judge his people when they drift from his law. Just know that. Our God is not afraid to judge his people when they drift from God's law. And God then uses the hammer of Nebuchadnezzar to crush his own people. It's the Lord that gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. Why is he doing that? Why is Nebuchadnezzar doing that? Because he gets to bring that which is considered sacred and dedicated 
to the true and living God into his God. And so that's a way of saying, hey, your God failed in comparison to my God. My God conquered your God. Your God, the one that you say is a true and living God, Yahweh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is an absolute failure. So in that respect, Nebuchadnezzar, while he's being used of by God, is also setting himself up for future judgment because he's taunting the true and living God. So he brings him to the house of his God and he places the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch. So a a eunuch is a castrated man who functions in a high level of government authority. The reason why these men were often castrated is because they would have been in regular proximity to the king's harem. And the king didn't want anything going on. You can, you know, read between the lines. So they would often castrate these men. And there is some evidence in the text, we can't be dogmatic on this, that when Daniel and his friends were inducted into government, government service, they may also have been castrated and become eunuchs. So plenty of reason for these young men to be a little bit angry at God. So his chief eunuch has, is commanded by the king to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competence, competent to stand in the king's palace. So basically he says to the chief eunuch, look, I want you to go find the cream of the crop among the deportees. I want you to find the smartest, the brightest, the best looking, the royalty. Why would he do that? Because they're the influencers. They're the ones that are representing the nation. In every nation state, there are influencers. The noblemen, the, the university educated, the intellectuals, the elite, the celebrities. What does he want to do with them? To teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. What would you call that in modern terms? Assimilation. If we, can, if we can assimilate the elite, if we can get our pagan ideologies into the, go, the former governors, into the universities, into the movers and shakers, if we, if we can convince the celebrities of these deportees to be on our side, to understand our way of thinking, we got the whole nation. We can indoctrinate and propagandize the whole nation. Sound familiar, by the way? All right, you're connecting the dots. That's good. So as part of that, the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. So this is, this is a, a perk of the, the new job, right? Hey, this isn't so bad. I thought I was gonna be laboring in the fields, but I get to eat from the king's table. So now he has me under my thumb because he's appealing to my carnal appetites. They were to be educated for three years. That's about the time that it takes to go to seminary and earn your MDiv. And at the end of that time, they would stand before the king. Now among them were Daniel, a Hebrew name, Hananiah, Hebrew name, Mishael, a Hebrew name, and Azariah, a Hebrew name. All, you can study it on your own, all with spiritual meaning attached of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Why? Because he wants to paganize them. In a culture where your name is important, 
he paganizes them. So he gives them names that are connected to false gods. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So let's just pause there for a moment and think about this a little bit more. So we have God judging Judah. And the lesson for us is that don't mess with God. If the people of God continue to worship idols, if the people of God continue to disobey the true and living God, in time, while God is patient, in time, God will bring down the hammer. He really will. If we choose to be unfaithful to him and to live however we want and to allow other supposed gods to rule us, at some point, at some time, God will judge his people. And I have a suspicion that God has already begun to do that in the Western church that has largely chosen compromise over faithfulness to the true and living God. They're inducted into a society that is pluralistic. Notice that while there is one primary God that Nebuchadnezzar worships, as you read through the book of Daniel, he even makes himself into a, the, 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 the king makes himself into a God at some point in time. So there were multiple opportunities to worship foreign gods as these young men find themselves in captivity without their youth pastor holding them accountable, without their men's discipleship groups holding them accountable, without a Christian church to attend, without Christian music on the radio, without Christian laws governing their nation, just like Joseph did centuries and centuries earlier, completely absent of any support system, they have this opportunity to rise out of the drudgery of menial slavery to become officials in the king's court. But there are strings attached. They needed to in be integrated into the belief systems of the Babylonians. They need to be educated in the language and ways of the Chaldeans. They needed to receive pagan names. So they needed to assimilate. Folks, this is the very essence of cultural compromise, of spiritual compromise. They're offered food. Now, food in and of itself isn't evil. But likely the problem was is that the foods they were presented were not only not in keeping with kosher laws, but also had likely been offered to pagan gods. So it wasn't that the food in and of itself was necessarily bad food, but what it represented was repulsive to these young men. We learn here about the nature of cultural assimilation. And by the way, the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because I want you to have your antennas up very, very high. If you, if you want to be faithful to the Lord in the here and now, you need to be aware of the threats that are coming your way. How is it that pagan states, godless states, assimilate and indoctrinate and propagandize people? How is it that they take Christians and make them into pagans in one generation? How is it that they, they reshape laws in, in, in a nation that historically was based upon 
Christian laws. How do they do that? Why is it that so many churches have folded to the various ideologies that are being peddled in our state? How is it that, how do you get Bible teaching churches in the course of one or two generations to be flying gay flags on their front lawns, to be promoting anti-creational sexual expression that is clearly in contradiction to the word of God. How do you do that? Well, you offer them status. In other words, you offer them influence and prestige. You offer them opportunities. Hey, you want to you wanna advance yourself a little bit? Why don't you come and serve in my court? Why don't you come teach in our universities? Hey, why, why don't you come be uh, the CEO of our corporation? But just so you know, you got to tone down that whole Christian stuff. Just, just so you know, you, you got to take our latest and greatest course in virtue signaling. You, you got you to be accepting of every lifestyle, even promote it. You got to write your pronouns on your name tag or put it at the bottom of your email. Minor compromise. But at the end of the day, we're going to pay you well. It's going to be opportunities for personal advancement. So they offer us status. They offer us free education. Hey, come on over. Everybody loves education. We're going to teach you in the literature and language of our nation. We are the superpower of the, of the ancient Near Eastern world. Who wouldn't want to learn our language and our customs? Oh, I'm into education, so degrees matter, so sign up for our educational tracks. They offer you food, sustenance. Again, it's not that the food was necessarily bad, but likely offered to idols or certainly not kosher. And likely, if it was the king's food, rather extravagant. And they, they want you to start to adopt their names, to associate. Now, in our culture, we don't put a lot of stock in the meaning of names. People generally look at baby names, books, and they just pick out the name that sounds good to them. And most of us probably don't even know what the origin or meaning of our names really are. But in ancient times, this was important. And the, the idea was, is we want you to speak our language. We want you to formally identify with our belief system. So what do we have here? Subtly, slowly, systematically, pagan society tries to assimilate us. That's what they do. And if we're not aware of it, we find ourselves suddenly assimilated. The pagans want us to adopt their language, their definitions of status, to work for them, to rely upon them, and most certainly to obey them. I think many Christians, even in our own church over the last couple of years, suddenly realized they were trapped in the system. We didn't realize we were trapped in the system. We were relying upon the medical establishment to save us. And now we realize that it's largely corrupt. We still had a certain measure of faith in the political establishment, the court systems to maintain our charter rights. 
the police not to come on our premises and try to stop us from worshiping. We just sort of assumed that that was, you know, we're kind of safe and we suddenly woke up to the fact, hey, we're actually not safe. They, they have us in their grip. They have us by the paycheck. So how is it, we should probably ask ourselves this question, how is it that you might already have been assimilated? How is it that you might already have been paganized? Paganized in your view of medicine. Paganized in your view of church authority. Paganized in your view of human origins. Paganized in your view of jurisprudence. Paganized in your view of education. Paganized in your view of church. Is that possible to be paganized in your view of church? Yeah, it is. It is. So brothers and sisters, not only is a knowledge of truth necessary and awareness of what the compromise is swirling around us, but we also have to have a firm resolve to not compromise that flows from an awareness that even though at times we may be foisted into positions where we are servants or slaves of the state, fundamentally we are servants and slaves of the true and living God. And we can never afford to compromise our allegiance to him for the sake of any of these things, status, opportunities, comfort, culture, the list goes on and on and on. So let's talk a little bit more about what it means to be a person of resolve. Daniel, we're gonna learn in this text, made an internal commitment to never compromise. He made a resolution And the reason why resolutions are really important in advance of compromise is because resolutions lead to solutions. The text goes on to say, but Daniel resolved. So as soon as he was presented with these opportunities, he's like, I'm gonna gonna draw a line in the sand and I will not compromise myself in this area. So he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He did take the opportunity to serve in the government. And we know as we read through the book that he had much influence. And this is a a pretty awesome thing because I've been encouraging many of you to run for political office. And I hope that some of you do in the coming municipal election and to stand for truth. But if you're gonna do it, you can't be a flaky Christian. You have to be a person of resolve that has clearly articulated your boundaries. What lines will you not cross? Daniel did that right up front. He resolved not to defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So he comes up with a possible solution. Doesn't know if it's gonna be accepted, but he comes up with a proposal. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And having made his resolution, verse nine tells us God honors it. And God gave Daniel favor. So this wasn't just some really nice eunuch. This was God working. You make the resolve, God does his thing. God gave Daniel favor and compassion even in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, so the chief of the eunuchs is like, okay, I'm considering this, but can you kind of understand my position? So listen very carefully to what the chief of the eunuch says in terms of trying to push back. I fear 
my Lord, the King. Now, that's not the true and living God. Who does he fear? Nebuchadnezzar. So many people that serve the state do what they do because they're living in fear. They don't want the consequences. They may know it's wrong. They may even be compassionate to our cause. They may even favor the Christian church, but they're not gonna stick their neck out because they know they're gonna get in trouble from others. Now, we don't live in fear, but we need to recognize that when we're negotiating and dealing with many people that serve the state that don't know the true and living God, they are terrified of the consequences to their own jobs, to their own lives, when asked to side with those that are clearly standing for righteousness. I think, I think you can make the, the necessary connections there. So he says, I fear my Lord, the King, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he, why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths of your own age? So there he has the assumption that God's laws are actually inferior to Nebuchadnezzar's laws. So he's like, okay, I'm, I'm cool with you not eating it, but I'm kind of scared of what the king's going to say. And I'm not really convinced that your diet's going to work to your advantage anyway. So he does not believe that God's laws are superior to the pagan laws of the time. And then this, so why should you endanger my head to the king? Why should your actions put me at risk? You should do the wrong thing because if you don't, you're risking my life. That sounds mildly familiar <laughs> to what we've been hearing now for the past two and a half years. We don't care what you think. We're not concerned about your views, your desire to open your church, your desire to exercise bodily autonomy under God. You're putting other people at risk. So, Come on, compromise along with us. Well, you can understand that if Daniel had received some favor from this man, he might, he might have thought to himself, yeah, that's true. I don't want, I mean, I'm willing to put my head in the chopping block, but I, I don't want to necessarily expose this man to unnecessary risk. So Daniel said to the steward, how long was the training? Three years, right? He reduces it down to 10 days. Now, I don't care what diet you've ever tried out. Your body isn't changed in 10 days that much. Not to the point that we're going to see described in this text. But Daniel has such faith in God that he believes that in 10 short days, there will be evidence proving that God's laws work that will both protect this man from having his own head taken from his shoulders, but also permit him to stay true to his beliefs, to his convictions. So he's not just strategically, if it was me, I might be thinking, okay, well, why don't we try this for a couple years? But in 10 days, he says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. That's it. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed for you. By the way, if you're a vegan, this ain't a vegan verse, Okay. This isn't like, oh, godly people only eat veggies. But he just reduces the diet down to the most basic commodity. Just give us carrots and water, salad and water. And at the end of it, you're going to see a marked difference. This is the faith of this young man. Keep in mind, this guy was a teenager in all likelihood. 
And we don't see this kind of faith among many 50-year-olds in the modern church. (laughs) This is a very young man. And the text goes on to say, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Now, not fatter in the sense of... But just, they looked better physically than all the youths who ate the king's food, without exception. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Wow, God does that when we're faithful? God can actually protect us from physical harm when we do the right thing? When it doesn't even make sense? from a human perspective, God can do that. The chief eunuch asked for compliance because he fears the king. He's not a principled man, he's a fearful man. Godly people are principled people. They do the right thing regardless of the consequences, regardless of the outcomes. He wanted their compliance in order to keep him safe. So they proposed a test. We'll obey obey God and we'll see who comes out on the other end better off. Would you be prepared to do that? I'm going to obey God. This is, my, this is my decision. I'm going to obey God and we'll see who comes out on the other end better off. Now, by the way, if you jump forward in the book, there's another incident where Daniel and his friends essentially declare that they're going to do the right thing and God will save them. But even if he does not, we'll still do the right thing, they say. So it's not that we're calculating the outcomes Sometimes Christians have done the right thing and they've had their heads removed from their shoulders. They've been burned at the stake. They've been imprisoned for life. But principled people do the right thing regardless. In this case, God comes through and he saves them in the here and now. In a relatively short period of time. Now, I wonder if Daniel in his humanness, we don't know, but we can insert ourselves into the equation. Because by the way, just up front, the message of Daniel is not dare to be Daniel. The message of Daniel is not, oh, this is an anthropocentric message. This is a man-centered message. Isn't Daniel awesome? Be like Daniel. That's not the message of Daniel. That's a horizontal way to preach the text. The message of Daniel is to worship the God of Daniel. The message of Daniel is God is the hero of the narrative, not Daniel. When you take a bold stand, when you're resolved for Christ, some might recognize it, but you're not the hero. You always want God to be the hero of the crisis. And, I, and so in this regard, I, I wonder if, if Daniel probably had a sleepless night or two along the way, like what if this doesn't work out? What if for these bony, scrawny, pasty wretches at the end of his 10 days. Probably thought about that. That would be normal. Daniel's not superhuman. He just worshiped a supernatural God. And so God, we learn, blesses resolve. In verse 17, as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill. So again, the emphasis And chapter one is about God. God permitting captivity. God giving them favor with the eunuch. And God 
giving them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. This is gonna come in handy because Daniel's gonna be called upon to interpret several dreams for the king of Babylon and later for the kings that would follow the Babylonian kings, Darius and the like. So he's given wisdom and understanding in all visions and dreams. When you obey God, God increases your intellect. Because what truth does is it brings order and clarity and perspective to the way you think. It helps you to see truth and error. It helps you to think logically and sequentially. So you can actually increase your intellect, heighten your thinking capacity by meditating upon and obeying the God who is a God of truth, not a God of chaos and confusion. God doesn't want you to be confused about what it means to be a Christian. God doesn't want you to be confused about what's right and what's wrong. It doesn't mean that we'll have absolute knowledge. We'll always, all, we'll always be learning. There'll always be a measure of ignorance because of our brokenness and our humanity. But God actually blesses Daniel with the ability to interpret dreams and visions. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they be brought in, so this is the three-year mark now, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none, not a single person, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These guys were top of the class of all their contemporaries. So what does that say about their contemporaries? Most people compromised. Who were their contemporaries? Other Jewish boys who compromised. Generally throughout history, the majority is wrong. It's kind of weird, but generally the majority is wrong. Generally the godly are in the minority. Generally they're the fringe minority. Generally. It's like, well, why didn't you guys close down your church? Everybody else did. Hmm. Maybe that's affirmation that we did the right thing. It doesn't mean that you always need to be in the fringe. I'm not suggesting that. It calls for wisdom. But most people, most people tend to compromise. Most people do. Why did Israel get deported? Because most people compromised. Why did Judah get deported? Because most people compromised. Why is God ultimately gonna judge the world? Because most people don't love God. Most people compromise. But when you choose not to compromise, it says there was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times. How many days did, were they tested? 10. Now they are 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. By the way, those magicians, enchanters, and satraps, and prefects, they're gonna come up several times in the book of Daniel as the arch nemeses to Daniel and his three friends. These guys not only outshone their compromised fellow Israelites, but they also outshone all of the professional 
intellectuals and thinkers and university profs and poets and artists and aristocrats in all his kingdom, which was rather large. And then it says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. In other words, he didn't get to go home right away. In fact, he never went home. He stayed there for the rest of his life. Judah spends 70 years, by the way, in total, in captivity before under Ezra and Nehemiah, they start to resettle the land that God had promised to them. So again, brothers and sisters, Daniel is not the hero of the story and neither are you, neither am I. God is the hero. And when we choose to resolve to do that, which our creator has asked us to do, blessings flow. That's how it works. Daniel is merely an instrument of the holy king who is sovereign over all. You and I are merely instruments of the sovereign king who is holy over all. The mission of God is the glory of God. God wants to put himself on display. And if he has to put himself on display by judging his disobedient people, he will do that. But he also loves to put himself on display by selecting a remnant, a minority, who in spite of their youthfulness, who in spite of their thin resumes, who in spite of their lack of impressive credentials, who in spite of being despised by the world, resolved to do the right thing. He loves to put himself on display through people like you and me, who in the eyes of the world are not particularly impressive people. Daniel is given incredible skills. Seminary can help. Good education can help. Reading good books can help. Being taught to think clearly can help. We understand that. Experience is an asset. We understand that. But folks, if you really want insight and skill to accomplish your assignment in this world, do yourself a favor and obey God. And he will heighten your intellect. He will heighten your skill sets. He will give you the resources to be able to say the right thing and do the right thing for his honor and for his glory. Don't overthink it. Daniel would be there for decades. His assignment didn't last for just two or three years. Oh man, we've been enduring tyranny for two years. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna move to some remote place in Nunavut. No, he, he didn't try to formulate an escape plan. He stuck it out. He braced himself. There were some hard times ahead. Nebuchadnezzar would die, another king would rise up. Belshazzar, he would die, another king would rise up, Cyrus. The kingdom would change hands. But this guy was a steady Eddie. He maintained his resolve. He didn't give in. We need to likewise brace ourselves for trial and tribulation, knowing that God has provided these trials and tribulations to us to mature us, to increase our resolve, and to bring him the honor that is truly due his name. So that's the message of chapter one. And I trust you'll take it to heart and be blessed by it. 